Would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, your people, gather here today to praise you and express our need for you and ultimately the deep love we share in you. Jesus, strengthen our faith in you. As we search for the sound of your voice, tune our hearts to hear your words. Help us to hear all that you have to say. And may we ignore all the false voices and listen to yours alone. Father, we praise you for the birth of Paul and Dana Compton's four grandchildren, Hannah, Mark, James, and Logan Pulsifer. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters battling cancer, Bill and Cindy Hay, Mike and Sandy Witten, Sandra and Jerry Norman. As Bill, Mike, and Sandra all face these set challenges, Father, we ask for your supreme peace and mercy for them and among their family. In the same way, we pray for David McIntosh as he recovers from surgery. Please bring rest and healing to him and those who care for him. Father, we grieve with Karen and Ken Stewart in the loss of Karen's mother, Maggie and Nathan Liberto's grandmother. Lord, we ask for your peace and loving comfort for this family. And Lord God, thank you for our missionary partners, Argus and Dinah Petra, serving in Greece. Please bless their efforts and relationships there as they work towards the recovery and the restoration of trafficked women. Lord, we are glad this day to come and to worship you. Draw us into a deeper relationship with you as we come and listen. In your loving name we pray. Amen. Nothing in this world is the way it's supposed to be. Everything is tinged with some sorrow and some difficulty, confusion, sometimes chaos, not being the way it's supposed to be. We've been studying the book of Numbers We're getting to the last, we are in the last section of the book of Numbers. We're in chapter 27 today. In this book, God's people who've been rescued by God's grace and God's love have been going through the wilderness, a very difficult experience, and they're on the border of the promised land. They're about to go into a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, and they're going to receive it as a gift from God because he loves them. Because he's gracious and kind. And it could be like pure celebration. Here we go. We're on the border of the land. And we're about to go get the inheritance. And, and that's part of, that's part of the, the feel of these chapters. Uh, where lots of positive things are being anticipated. We're going in the land. We're going to get it. We're going to flourish there. We're going to live in God's presence and have God's gifts. And it's going to be great. And there's hints of that in today's passage. But there's also hints that they were still in the wilderness still living in the very broken world that you and I live in now. What is it just this, just this past week or just this weekend or just this morning, what was it that reminded you that nothing's the way it's supposed to be? What's grabbed your attention? Frustrated you, crushed your spirit? Arrested you? 
reminding you that we don't live in Eden. We don't live in that original garden before human rebelled. And we don't live in the new heavens, new earth yet. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. What's grabbed your attention and reminded you of that? Uh, This weekend, as you might uh, know, many of you would know this, about about 180 of our students and, and parents and volunteers are on the winter retreat and uh, we're praying that they'll have a great time. We've been praying for Walt Davis, who's speaking to them and praying for all those that are helping. But this, this very week that we're sending a, sending a ton of our students uh, to a winter retreat, we got a, an email from a partner in Ukraine who uh, works with churches there and churches that we helped start uh, in the past decades and around a counseling center that we helped start, Covenant Presbyterian Church did and in years past. And, and so this woman, a friend of ours, wrote this email to a friend of our church and it was shared with us this week. This is what some of the young people in Ukraine are currently experiencing The life of children of war uh, have very little joy. Like us adults, they suffer from this war, but their suffering is even more painful because they don't understand how to cope with fear. They can't always rely on adults nearby. They might have some adults in their life. They may have lost some adults in their life, but those adults are largely preoccupied with surviving. They're going through major emotional uh, trauma, and they don't really have people around them who are helping them. Most of the children in Ukraine can't go to school. They can't be with their friends. They can't practice their hobbies. They can't visit their favorite places. The fathers of many children are now at war defending our land, and many children have become orphans. So he tells a story about, a, the, sorry, she, the, the author of this email, tells a story about a few of these kids. Uh, one is the 11-year-old son, Misha, of Roman. Roman's a counselor that works in a counseling center that we help uh, get started. And Misha is his 11-year-old son. Uh, Misha uh, hadn't spoken much about the war uh, since it started two years ago. And then all of a sudden, much spilled, spilled out. All of a sudden, um, he, he, he started talking about how Roman woke him up on the very first day that the war had begun. When he got dressed, he had a strange kind of fear and he wanted to run away and hide somewhere. He hadn't spoken about it in two years. It all spilled out. A few days after the first day of the war, there was a birthday for his little niece. And as they were sitting at the table celebrating her birthday, they heard sounds of an explosion and the little girl asked what it was, Misha who then was nine, did not want her to know about the war, so he told her it was thunder. Just all of a sudden, things he'd been processing for two years just all spilled out because he, Misha knows, um, if we've forgotten, and we haven't forgotten, Misha knows the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's a very, very difficult place. There's a little nine-year-old boy named Gleb. His father was a soldier and died several months ago. Gleb is not talkative. He wants to be alone. His mother asked for help. She worries because he's changed so much. He used to be very talkative and active, and now he just wants to be left alone, doesn't want to talk. Maybe we'll draw some things. Other little people we heard about, Nika, she's 14 years old. She was part of a very friendly, cheerful family, and everything changed when the war began. Their city was occupied in the first days of the war. They had to flee. They had to leave everything behind. Her father joined the army. 
Uh, they didn't see him for six months. Then the news came that he was injured. Then her mom went to be with her injured dad in the hospital. Uh, she was being raised by her older siblings. They were very preoccupied, didn't give her enough attention. The mom came home and hardly recognized her own daughter. She'd become so sullen, so closed off, so quiet not herself. And then on her phone, she discovered that her 14-year-old daughter had gotten into a relationship with an adult man looking for help, looking for hope, looking for protection and security. The world we live in is a very broken place. And I'm mentioning these things because for lots of reasons, but, but one is one of, one of the things about the Bible that helps me trust it as God's word is God in the Bible doesn't dodge the difficult stuff. All through the Bible, when God's people fail, God tells us about it in his word. And when God's people face massive struggles, um, God tells us about those struggles. And over and over again, we see God not dodging difficulties, not sweeping them under the rug, but facing them head on. This is remarkable, uh, even compared to other religions. When difficulties are are described, narrated in the Bible, uh, you never hear God saying, I want you to think about butterflies and rainbows. Just don't think about that. It's not how the Bible works. When things are really broken and really messy and really difficult, what you have is God showing up with his words of comfort, God showing up with his very presence. And at the center of the whole story of the Bible, God comes himself. In the person of his own son, God's own son comes into the world, not to teach us how to think about suffering, but to suffer himself, to be rejected, to be misunderstood, to be mistreated and to rescue a swollen, broken world with his love. That's the heart of the biblical story. A God who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish in the deep miseries of this world, but actually be rescued by his love and have eternal life in his name. That, that matters when you get to Numbers 27, because here's what's going on. Uh, the reason we call the book of Numbers Numbers is because there's two really long genealogies in it. The Hebrew name for this book is In the Wilderness. It fits the book much better. But chapter one is a long chapter of genealogy, just a long list of names. And if you read through the Bible in the year, this is one of those places you kind of get stuck, right? Well, chapter 26 is the next generation listed again, all these names and, and, and some numbers are added up. And basically in both lists, you have over 600,000 soldiers named that are going to go into the land and take it, receive it as God's gift and take it. And so in chapter one, there's a long list of names, a genealogy. And in chapter two, there's a long list of names. There's a census in both chapters of all the people of Israel, all those who could who could fight. And many of them, many of the leaders are named. And so that, and Josh hit on this last week, that Genesis 26, uh, that's signaling to us that a new generation is here. The old generation is dying off in the wilderness. So when, when you get to Genesis 27, this is significant to grab this. All the adults that have come out of Egypt, they've all died by now, except for three people. Moses is still alive. Joshua is still alive. And Caleb is still alive. And everyone else, that first generation is dead. And so Genesis, sorry, Numbers 26 gives us this long census to tell us the old generation has passed along and this new generation is here. And chapter 27, today's passage, 
tells us there's some, there holds before us, there's some new models for what it means to trust in God's purposes. There's an old picture, a, a mature picture of leadership that counts for every generation, but also this new generation is going to need um, some new leadership. So that's what we're going to see today in our passage, new, new role models for this new emerging generation, uh, a mature model for every generation. And then finally, um, we'll see new leadership for the new generation. That's what's going on. And Genesis 27, will you read along with me as I read it? Um, our worship guide says from Numbers 27, that's true. It's the whole chapter. Uh, here it is on pages 13 and 14 in your worship guide. Please read along with me. This is the 27th chapter of the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting saying, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against Yahweh and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before Yahweh and Yahweh said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel, a statute and rule as Yahweh commanded Moses. Yahweh said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I've given to the people of Israel. When you've seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to Yahweh saying, let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of Yahweh may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. So Yahweh said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before Yahweh. At his word, they shall go out and at his word, they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as Yahweh directed through Moses. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Will you play, please pray with me? Father in heaven, help us see how this 
story unfolding before us speaks to our lives today. Give us hope. Help us trust in you. Help us hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's what's happened. The old generation's almost completely died off. There's a new generation, and they're going to go into the land, and that that 26th chapter was named them all because they're all going to get an allotment. Every tribe is going to get some portion of the promised land. It's going to be given to them as an inheritance. It's a sheer gift. Nobody earned it. It's 100% gift, and God's going to give it out to them as his will so uh, chooses. And uh, each tribe of the 12 tribes is going to get an allotment in the promised land. Um, And part of it's going to lop over just outside that promised land. But they're all going to get an inheritance, a gift from the Lord in the land. And so then what's the first story we're told after that? A problem story. The very first story after you get this big census because everyone, each tribe, each clan, each family is going to get their inheritance and enjoy in God's presence. The first thing you get is a problem. There was a man named Zelophehad. Try saying that five times quickly. There was a man named Zelophehad and he didn't have any sons. He had five daughters. In our culture, no problem whatsoever. You probably divide that inheritance up five ways if you like everybody, and uh, it works out fine. But in the ancient world, that's not how it works. The ancient world, uh, the culture was patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal. And all that meant was the way they passed on inheritance was from father to the sons. The oldest son, the firstborn son, got a double portion a double portion of the inheritance because he had the most responsibility. He was responsible for the well-being of the family. And that's how things happened in the ancient world. It passed from father to sons, fathers to sons, fathers to sons. And that really was a way that lots of people were cared for well. But here's what you have. Very first story after the census. Hey, we're all going to get the inheritance. We're all going to get an allotment. Wait up. There's a problem. There's a family with five daughters and there's no son. In other words, legally, there's nobody to receive the inheritance. In the ancient world, here's the category that this story fit in. These people were vulnerable. The cultural situation, the cultural standards of the day did not provide for them. These people were vulnerable. The father's inheritance would have gone to another relative and these daughters would have been in a very, very vulnerable situation. The world is a broken place where people often find themselves in vulnerability. So I want you to see what Moses is doing here and narrating their story is giving us some role models for living in a broken world. If they don't trust in God's promise that he's actually going to give the inheritance to all of his people, this isn't really a problem because no one's going to get an inheritance and they won't be cut out of it. Their problem assumes that God is faithful, assumes that God's going to keep his word, but they feel like they're an exception to it. And frankly, they are. They, it's not going to work. Something is off. Uh, Their father's name is going to disappear from the inheritance records and they're not going to be able to participate in the reception of the gift. 
And so I want you to see what they do. Uh, they're, they're the first models, the first role models of God's faithful people of the second generation. And you're going to get a lot of these in these last chapters of Numbers, some positive stories, which is nice. What do they do? They go to the leadership that God has given them and they present their problem before them and before the Lord. Do you see it there in verse two? They had the problems, they went and they stood before Moses and before Eleazar. There's a great hint that you got the second generation. Where's Aaron? Oh, he's dead. They stood before Moses and Eleazar, Aaron's third born son. And before Eleazar, the priests, before the chiefs and before all the congregation, the word here for all the congregation doesn't mean all 600,000 people plus their families. Uh, This is the leadership of the whole assembly. That's who they're standing in front of. And where are they at the entrance of the tent of meeting? And there's the problem. Our father died in the wilderness, verse three. He was not among that really infamous group that went with Korah, that rebelled against the Lord, that were swallowed up by the earth. Uh, But then listen to how sober they are. He wasn't one of those wicked guys that went with Korah that rebelled and led that rebellion against Aaron and Moses and Yahweh. But the end of verse three, but he died for his own sin and he had no sons. Here are the two things they're saying. We recognize our dad was part of that generation that failed. We get it. And they're not making excuses. We understand that whole generation did not trust the Lord. They didn't obey. They didn't go in and get the land. And they wandered with us in the wilderness for 40 years. We get it. Our father was was among that generation that didn't obey, that didn't believe. But he had no sons. And so they made their very for request. We don't want our father's name erased from the the records of God's people. And so we say to you, give us possession among our father's brothers. We don't have a brother uh, to receive the inheritance. So uh, here's one, our second point is going to be about Moses and his wisdom, but we're going to, we'll repeat this just a minute. Look at the wisdom of Moses here. Uh, Moses did not know what to do. So he brought their case before the Lord. It's a pretty good response. And look at verse six. And Yahweh said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. I think that's wonderful. Uh, That matches a theme throughout the whole Bible. Yahweh characteristically comes to the defense of the vulnerable. He does it again and again and again. And the Lord is committed to things being just and right and equitable. That's who God is and he loves it. And when he has a chance to come to the defense of the vulnerable, he does it throughout the scriptures again and again and again. That's who God is and that's who he wants his people to be. This is characteristically who Yahweh, the God of Israel is. A God who defends the vulnerable, who defends the poor, who wants things to be right and just. And so uh, it's not a surprise here uh, what he does and what he says. Uh, Think about it. in general, in the ancient world, uh, younger sons served firstborn sons, but not with Jacob and Esau. God has no problem flipping uh, the cultural uh, conventions of the day. Think about it. Uh, king David's the most important king in the old, Old Testament, but he wasn't the firstborn son or the secondborn son or the thirdborn son or the fourthborn son or the fifthborn son or the sixthborn son or the seventh. He was the eighth. 
And that absolutely flipped all the cultural conventions of the day. Uh, God is not anti-culture. He's pro-culture. He's the creator. He's full of wisdom. He loves beauty and order. He brings order out of chaos. God isn't against tradition, uh, but he doesn't need our cultural traditions to hold up uh, his values. No, it's quite the opposite. Uh, God critiques every culture uh, with his wisdom and his character. And so here we see who Yahweh is characteristically coming to the the defense of the vulnerable. The whole story of the Bible works because God had a beloved son to sin to rescue a broken world in love. His beloved son would come as an obedient son who would be treated like a criminal so that wicked children, wicked and disobedient sons and daughters could inherit the promises that God had made. If you believe in Jesus and you believe the reason you have eternal life is not because you earned it, but because what God has done for you in his son, it has to change the, the, the spreadsheet math of our hearts. When we, when, we, when we see that God has given us many resources and we look at people uh, who have way less, it completely alters the way we see the values of the world. It redoes us from the inside out. The God who's rescued us by grace and love rescued us by grace. That means we didn't deserve it. And with love, greatly sacrificial to himself, unbelievably and eternally beneficial to us. This is who God is all through the story of the scriptures over and over and over again. What promise are you really trusting in today? It's January. Are you believing if you eat right this whole year, you'll finally have the body that, you, that you've been wanting for the last 25 years or whatever it is? Uh, it, it's January. Are you believing the promise that if you finally have more discipline in this area of life over here, you know, you'll be able to do X, Y, Z plus Q, R, T, whatever it is? Uh, what, 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 what promises are you believing today? The daughters of Zelophehad had believed that God was going to give his people an inheritance they didn't earn. It was a gift of grace and they appealed to God and he said they were right. Five sisters, no brother, their father is dead, but they came to the right person, the leader that God had given them. Five sisters, no brother, their father is dead, but they came to the right tent, the tent where Yahweh himself lived. Five sisters, no brother, their father is dead, but they came to the right God. And once again, they engage with the God who cares about the vulnerable. And so secondly, I want you to see that in Moses, we have a mature role model for leaders for every generation. Um, So we just saw it there in verse five, someone came to him with a really difficult problem that they hadn't thought about yet. And he didn't act like he had it all figured out. It's a great picture of maturity and leadership. He didn't pretend to be an expert. He didn't pretend to know something he didn't know. He didn't pretend to have it all sorted. He turned and said, I think I'll go talk to the Lord about this. And then the Lord revealed his gracious character once again. But in this next passage, verses 12 and following, we see more about Moses' leadership and the maturity that we need. Uh, Verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I've given to the people of Israel. I want you to see it, look at it. When you've seen it, you also should be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Moses, just like uh, Abraham did up on a high hill, 
you get to look over and see the land and see where the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to live. But you're not going in. Verse 14, why isn't Moses going in? Moses who's led them for these decades. Moses who's been the Lord's faithful servant. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zen. When the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. Here's what Moses did. Uh, There was a time that God's people who, there's major failure of rebellion stories all through Numbers. Do you love it that we have a confession of sin every week in our liturgy? I love it. There are seven rebellion stories throughout the whole book of Numbers where God's people fail. And at one point, there there was that characteristic failure. They were grumbling and complaining because they didn't have uh, what they thought that they needed and they were thirsty, a very legitimate need. And God said, meet me at the rock and speak to the rock and water shall gush, gush forth for you and for the people. And Moses was ticked. He'd had it up to here with these rebellious people, these grumblers that he had to lead. And so he took his staff and when he stood before the rock, he didn't speak to it the way God said, but he whacked it twice. He struck the rock twice, which is something God had actually told him to do much earlier when they first came out of Egypt, but not this time. And so what, and Moses was the leader very much in front of God's people, in front of the whole congregation. And he didn't do what God said. He didn't uphold God as holy. And so not even Moses is going to get to go into that promised land. And so That's a major failure, but I want you to see that Moses is an example because sometimes failure leads to remarkable maturity and wisdom. Verse 14, you're not going in. You get to see it before you die because you rebelled against me. Uh, In verse 15, Moses goes on and says there's another need. So here's what's missing between verse 14 and 15. Moses makes zero excuses. He's the model of mature leadership that we need. When he didn't have the answer to the question, he sought the Lord. And when the Lord reminded him of his failure, he didn't make one excuse. Isn't that amazing? Can you put yourself in Moses' shoes? I mean, wouldn't you want to said, Lord, can't I just go in for a month? <laughs> I've led these people so well for 40 years. You know how obstinate they are. You know how difficult they are. You know how much often they grumble and complain. Not one excuse. Not one excuse. Moses is a model of leadership because he seeks the Lord because he makes zero excuses for his failure. And thirdly, he's an example because he's so other-centered. Look what he does. He doesn't just change the topic because he doesn't like that his failure's on record. But in verse 15, Moses spoke to Yahweh. Remember, he's about to die. Verse 16, let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of Yahweh may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. What is on Moses' mind at the end of his life? Oh Lord, I want to see your plan right now that you'll provide healthy leadership for these people. These are your people, Lord, and we don't want them to be like sheep without a shepherd. 
Man, that's a great model for leadership, isn't it? Someone who seeks the Lord, someone who makes no excuses for their failure, and somebody who's other-centered, thinking about what is it that God's people need. Now, I love that this is in our passage this week because next week at Covenant Presbyterian Church, we're going to bring before you men that you have seen functioning like deacons and like elders. And we're going to ordain some and ordain and install some and reinstall some. And this is exactly what we should be praying for the leaders that God has given us. That King Jesus, the chief shepherd has given us. Don't we need leaders who are humble enough to say, I don't, I don't have that figured out yet. Who are humble enough to not make excuses when we blow it. And who are other centered, who understand that if they've been elevated to a position of leadership in the church, it's for the sake of the church. It's to serve and give our lives away in love. Please pray for that. And now we see this last thing here. Uh, Joshua is the one. Uh, this is new leadership for the new generation. Won't you see how it is that it's arranged because we're actually going to imitate this passage next week when we ordain and install elders. So basically the answer to Moses' prayer and his hope before the Lord is a man named Joshua. And look at verse 18. So Yahweh said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hands on him. And then he says, make him stand in front of Eliezer, the priest and before the whole congregation. And what they're going to do is lay hands on him. And he just keeps saying in front of all the people, in front of the congregation, in front of all the people, in front of all the congregation, the congregation. In other words, it's public. So there's two things here I want you to see about this new generation of leadership where it's transferring from one generation to the next. You'll notice some young leaders standing in front of you next week. Number one, you nominated them and then you elected them. And here's why you saw the spirit of God in them. And that must always be what's going on. They must be men that you say, oh, I see Jesus at work in his character. I see him as a servant. I see him as somebody that's already engaging in other centered activity because that's what Moses did. And then look at what Yahweh said about Joshua. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. Here's, here's what our church must not do. We don't say, well, he's pretty immature, but if we make him an officer, we'll grow him up. That's, that's not what we do. You look for people, you already see the spirit of God working in them. You name them, you train them. And then what do you do in a very public way? So it's very transparent. You lay hands on them and set them apart, set them aside to lead. And that's exactly what we're going to do next week. There's always new leadership emerging in any group. And it's also the truth in the church. And that's what's happening here. Moses is going to die. You're going to hear a few more sermons from him from the book of Deuteronomy before he dies. But he's going to go the way of all flesh. And he's going to, Joshua's going to take his place. And it's always like that. Leaders are always coming and always going. And they all fail. Every leader who isn't named Jesus has failed, will fail, will fail again. We're all failures. But here's this one Joshua set aside, this new leader for this new generation. And we can count on the Lord Jesus Christ doing the same thing for us because he's ultimately the chief shepherd. 
Jesus, the chief shepherd, is always raising up new leaders so his people won't be sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was, once was with God's covenant people and he saw them harassed and haggled like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? He called leaders around himself and he said, let me tell you what to say and let me tell you what to do. Now go out in my power and announce the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is still doing the same thing because Jesus is the chief shepherd. I mean, can we trust him to give him the leaders that we need? Let's be super, super transparent. Every leader, myself included, has failed and will fail again, period. And can we trust Jesus to give us the leaders that we need, even though we're failures. Can we trust Jesus to give us the leaders we need and to sanctify us and make us the leaders that we need to be? We can. Who is the chief shepherd whom we trust? He's the one who became a little sheep. Our chief shepherd, the one who doesn't dodge difficulties, who doesn't run away from problems, he became the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Can you trust him to give you healthy leaders, leaders that will lead in humility and other-centered love, you can because that's what he's like toward us. That's his deep commitment for us. Jesus became the lamb who took the sin of the world away. How did he do that? He took my sin upon himself. He took your sin upon himself. He took the sin of his people upon himself. He, the lamb of God, That very one is the chief shepherd of the church universal. He's the chief shepherd of this church. He's the chief shepherd of every church globally we're connected to. He's the chief shepherd and he's deeply committed to seeing his people shepherded. We can trust not all those leaders he appoints, but the one who appoints them because of his deep, deep commitment to us. We can trust Jesus to lead us through the leaders he chooses and through his very real presence, even here today, as we meet him at his royal table. Will you pray and let's meet him there. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're the king, the shepherd, the leader that gave your life for us in self-giving love. Would you please make all of us more and more like you and especially those whom you've called to lead. Please. Fill us with your spirit. Please make us selfless servants who give our lives away in love. Help us think much of your honor and none of our own. Help us think much of the health of your bride and give ourselves to it. Now strengthen all of us with your gracious presence as we meet you at the table. Amen.